we're going to go ahead and get started because we're a little late already. Um, Jenna and I were on our way here, and right as we were pulling into the church parking lot, we got pulled over. So it's only fitting that I teach on joy this morning, um, the Lord teaching me practically before I get started. Um, before we get into it, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you for another Lord's Day to come and to worship with the saints and to um, meditate on your word and your truths, O oh Lord. I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and our minds this morning, uh, driving your truth deep into our hearts, Lord. Um, that it would inform our thinking and inform the way that we live our lives um, and that you would be glorified in all that we do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week, uh, similarly to how we went about things last week, it's going to be a pretty similar structure, um, starting with just defining our terms, um, looking at the example of Christ and his life, um, and how that informs the way we think about joy, um, and the thing about joy in the life of believers as well. So I want to start with a question, just for personal reflection. If you think about your life, what brings you joy in your life? To what do you typically affix your joy? Do we or what should we? What do you? Yes, what do you fix your joy to? I would say oftentimes it's, it, it tends to be family or uh, those around us, or at least personally for me. Yeah. yeah family. Or circumstances. Yeah, circumstances. Circumstances. From what point? Well, when we, when we get what we want, then we seem to have joy. <laughs> yeah. When things go our way, <laughs> yeah. then we're very happy. What else? How much sleep I got. How much sleep you got. Gotta relate to that. So let me ask a follow-up question. Is joy different than happiness? And if so, in what way? I, well, I might, I don't want to disagree with your point. I think they're very similar connected. I think people try to identify them. I've heard say people be like, oh, yes, I'm joyful, but I'm just not happy. They're like a disgruntled Christian or something. They're just like, oh, yeah, I'm not happy. But I'm joyful and doesn't really make sense to me. So that's... We are actually not disagreeing with you. Me. Okay. I would actually agree with you. As I was reflecting on it, I heard that a lot, too, growing up in church, uh, this division between joy and happiness. And I think the emphasis people are trying to draw is that they try to say that happiness, they emphasize that it's connected to circumstance, whereas joy is not. But I think both ought to be part of the Christian life. And I think in the Bible, you actually find that joy and the words used to convey the concept, theological concept of joy, there are many that are similar to happiness. Um, if we look at some of the words in the Bible that are used to define joy, um, it's we have joy and joyful, but we also have enjoyment and joy, or to be glad. Um, gladness, um, this happiness of heart. But I think what people are trying to get across and what I would agree with is that joy or the happiness of a Christian is not dependent upon circumstance and in opposition to often how it actually takes place in our lives. Joy, biblically, is something deeper than a, an emotional reaction to something going our way. Um, a PCA pastor, Jan Daniel J. Dink, describes joy this way, and I thought it was really helpful. He says that biblical joy is not just a fleeting feeling or emotion. It is something deep deeper, sturdier, and weightier. I have come to define joy as a steady disposition and a hopeful, peaceful outlook on life. It is a deep-seated sense of well-being, God's shalom. When we become aware of God's bountiful, gracious gifts to us, joy accompanies contentment and leaves our striving behind. So joy is not just an emotion, though this is often the way that 
people think about in the world and often in the church, and it is not dependent upon circumstance. Um, and that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today. So a couple examples in the Bible of this concept. Um, Isaiah 51.11 says, The ransoms of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Or in Psalm 118.24 we read, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So to Daniel's point, I don't think that joy, biblically speaking, is somebody who says, and I'm feeling joyful right now, I'm being joyful, and yet is disgruntled and cranky and angry and upset with everything that comes their way. That doesn't really fit with the picture that we see in the Bible of joy. Um, I think it's a false dichotomy that people try to draw. But joy also is different from maybe the way that the world would define happiness and that we do tend to define happiness or even joy. Um, We think about it in the context of circumstances that are positive or benefit us or go the way that we would like them to. Um, For example, we were very happy or rejoice when somebody gets good news from the doctor or um, when work goes really, really well for us, or when our cars are running great, or the house is in good shape. Um, But often that joy tends to flee the moment the car starts to break down, or the house starts leaking, or we get pulled over in the church parking lot, or a number of other things. We get bad news from the doctor. It's a lot harder in those moments to continue in joy and contentment than it is when things are going our way. But that is, in fact, what the Bible calls us to. So I want to spend a little time thinking about Jesus' joy. In the book we read, um, the Reverend Rick gave us prepping for teaching on the fruit of the Spirit, he talked about, or asked the question, do we think of Jesus as a joyful person? And I spent a lot of time thinking and reflecting on that. And I think that the true answer for me, at least, is that often that's not one of the things that comes to mind when I think about Christ. Um, I often think of Jesus as the suffering servant who was well acquainted with grief, Mm -hmm. who endured hardship. And um, that is undoubtedly true. Jesus was the man of sorrows and he was well acquainted with grief. And he did endure hardships that I can't even imagine, particularly on the cross. But... Jesus was, was also a man of great joy. And what I want, one of the things I want us to see today is that those things are not mutually exclusive. That for Jesus to be the man of sorrows and a man of great joy are not a dichotomy. It's not one or the other. And it's not the same for us as well. John Piper says of Jesus that Jesus is and always will be indestructibly happy. He is the happiest being in the universe His gladness is greater than all the angelic gladness of heaven. He mirrors perfectly the infinite, holy, indomitable mirth of his Father. He is glad with the very gladness of God. So just as we said last week, I want to start with Christ because we find the proper orientation for all the fruit of the Spirit, all those different aspects, find the orientation in God. Just like if we want to know what it means to love, we have to look at the Father. We have to look at Christ. We have to see how God loves to know what love looks like in the Christian life. So the same is true of joy. If we want to be a joyful people, a people of rejoicing and gladness, the first step is to look at Christ and to look at God and see how he is joyful and where he finds gladness and letting that inform our minds and our hearts as we look at joy. Because Jesus was truly God and he was truly man, a man living in accordance with the spirit all the days of his life. So he is that perfect example for us. So first, if we look at Jesus and the joy of Jesus, primarily and first and foremost, Jesus' joy is found in the Father and in his Father's will. So to illustrate this point, you can all turn to Acts 2, if you would like. We're going to be kind of all over the Bible, just like we were last week, so I'm going to throw out a lot of different references. But just to set the stage, in Acts 2, if you are familiar, is Pentecost. And the apostles are preaching the gospel to all these nations who are gathered. The Spirit has been poured out upon them, and they're preaching 
and many languages, and every all these people were hearing in the, as if in their own language. And so Peter gets up and he gives this great sermon. And in verse 25, if somebody wants to read Acts 2, 25 through 28 for me, that would be great. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So here Peter is quoting a song. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11 specifically. And he's taking the psalm and he is saying that David is speaking of, the psalmist is speaking of Christ to come. This is a psalm about the Messiah. Um, and if you were with, in a, if you were in Sunday school last semester, remember that Chase went over this quite a bit in our study of the psalms, that the psalms are primarily about Christ and they point to Christ, prophesy and foreshadow about Christ. And all these kingly psalms are true about Jesus, and they find their ultimate fulfillment in him. And so that's what Peter is doing here. He's pointing back all of his, all of his audience to Psalm 16, and he's speaking of Jesus' unshakable hope because his Father will not abandon him to Hades or let his Holy One see corruption. And he's speaking in, of the resurrection and of Christ's resurrection from the dead. But what I would like you to note is where Jesus, according to the psalm, where his joy is found. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. So Jesus rejoices because the Lord is always before him. The Lord is at his right hand. It is communion with the Father that brings Jesus joy. He goes on to say at the end, you make me full of gladness with your presence. Um, in your presence are, is fullness of joy. For Jesus, full joy comes in communion with the Father. It is his communion with God that makes him glad. Um, in the same way, this is true for believers. And we'll get to that a little bit later, but our joy also is found primarily in the Lord. So if you guys want to flip over to Luke 10, we're going to look at a different example of Jesus' joy. We looked at Jesus' joy in the Father himself, in the presence of God, and I want us to look at Jesus' joy in the will of the Father. So if we look at Luke 10, I need someone to read for us verse 17 through 22. And before I do, we do that, um, let me give you a little context. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out disciples. Um, he sends out 72 disciples to go to all these different towns and to preach the gospel. And he empowers them to do these works in his name. Um, and in verse 17, we read of the 72 returning to Jesus. So could somebody read 17 through 22 for us? The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by, the, by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we read here, as, we just, as Mark just read, the disciples return to Jesus with joy. And they're so excited because even the demons are subject to them in his name. And Jesus redirects 
their joy. Um, he says, do not rejoice in the spirits being subject to you, but he tells them to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. In other words, you could say the disciples who had gone out took great joy in the circumstances that accompanied their mission. That there was this great success, that the spirits were subject to them, and in this they take great joy. But Jesus wants to direct their joy to something deeper than a temporary success. And it's really important for us to note, because as we were talking about earlier, it's easy to feel joy when circumstances are going our way. It's easy to feel joy when things are going well. And this is even true in the church, is it not? It's easy to rejoice when the church grows, when people are living in peace and unity, um, when there's good fellowship um, and there's not disagreement or dissension, when there's not um, rampant, unrepentant sin. It's easy to rejoice in those times, but there are times in the church where progress is slow, where progress is painful, where the church grows slowly, or we have to deal with sin, or we have disagreement between members of the body, and we have to work through that and reconcile and communicate. And those times often are a lot harder to rejoice in than the times where everything seems to be going well. And this is the same thing the disciples were doing. But Jesus instructs them, and thus he instructs us, that our joy should not rest on success. Jonathan Cruz says, is it, a it is a dangerous thing for joy to hinge upon success or failure, for then it would often be in precariously low supply. If we let our joy depend on circumstances, we will be sorely disappointed in our lives. But Jesus directs the disciples to a deeper joy, a joy that will abide forever, and that is that they are, their names are written in heaven, not in the circumstances of their life, but that they are known by the Father, and the Father knows them. That they will be in the new heavens and the new earth. That they have experienced God's salvation. And then we see also the same thing in Jesus. Jesus himself not only redirects the disciples, but in verse 21 and 22, Jesus gives us a practical example um, of what it means to rejoice in the Lord. He turns and he prays to the Lord, and he thanks the Lord, because God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children because that was his gracious will. So Jesus gives thanks and he rejoices in the will of the Father. And specifically here, it is the will of the Father to reveal himself to the poor and the destitute, to the humble and the contrite of heart. He rejoices in God's will to reveal himself to sinners and to save. So Jesus' joy is found in the Father and in the work of the Father. And then closely tied with that, Jesus rejoices in the salvation of sinners and the promises of God. We read in Hebrews 11, I'm sure you all are familiar, but in Hebrews 11 we read about the, the hall of faith. Right? We read about all these Old Testament saints and how they persevered through various hardships and they held on for this hope that was coming, even though they didn't see the full realization of it in their lives. And so after this great hall of faith in Hebrews 12, we read about Christ. The author encourages us, he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the question then is, now the question I'm going to ask you guys, open up to you guys, what is the joy that was set before Jesus? What does that mean? Well, I've always thought of it as the glory, uh, yeah, uh, the exaltation of Christ. Uh, but I realize you're asking this question as we're on the third point, so... I guess here to bring it to that. That's definitely part of it, yes. <laughs> what else? So we have the, the Lord, his joy is his exaltation. Um, we read about that, I'll just say it real quickly. 
Um, in John 17, he prays and asks the Lord Father to glorify him as was promised beforehand. Um, and his glorification comes through the cross and through his suffering and death and his resurrection. Um, in Luke 24, 26, we read about, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So the glory and his glorification is part of the joy set before him. And what else? One other thing I'm looking for. The salvation of sinners? Yeah, the salvation of sinners. Correct. Tied very closely with his glorification. And like we talked about last week, part of what Jesus endured the cross for, the joy set before him, was a people for himself. And we read about that in Isaiah 53, might be one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible, speaking of the servant, of his sacrifice as a, as a lamb offered for the sins of his people. And one of the rewards of this is that out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And it goes on to say that Jesus will receive an inheritance, which is a people for himself. So Jesus rejoices both in his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, this glorification he receives because he fulfilled the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace on behalf of his people. And in doing so, he receives to himself a people. And so Jesus rejoices in the saving of his people. So Jesus' joy is found in the Father and in the Father's will. And that the will of the Father is to exalt Jesus and to save sinners. So moving to then the life of the believer, I want to think about, oh, went a little too far. Think about joy in the life of a believer, and again, letting um, goodness gracious, sorry, letting Jesus's joy inform our joy. So, first and foremost, just like Christ, for the life of the, for the believer, joy is found in the Lord. It is not found in our circumstances. Um, I think what is true of Jesus in Psalm 16. In your presence there is fullness of joy, is also true of the believer. That's a timeless theological truth that we ought to know and ought to remember. That our joy is in the presence of God himself. It is not in the fleeting circumstances of life, but it is in his eternal presence. And this is why the gospel is such good news for us, is that we will enjoy communion with God forever. That is one of the, the blessings of the gospel that we rejoice in, is that because of Christ's work, we now will enjoy the presence of the Lord forever. We enjoy in part now, and in one day, we'll enjoy in fullness as we dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And the same truth is echoed in Philippians. In Philippians 4, and it's a passage I know you're all familiar with, Paul exhorts the believers in Philippians 4 to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This echoes an exhortation he gave in Philippians 3.1, the same exhortation to rejoice in the Lord. And in the midst of his sufferings, as he writes this letter, he continually calls these believers back to joy, back to joy in the Lord. And he's writing to a church in Philippi um, that is undergoing suffering, that's undergoing persecution and imprisonment, um, that is poor, um, and in the midst of all that suffering, he calls them to joy in the Lord and not joy in their circumstances. And just like with love, I want us to see that joy is to be a mark of the believer. Again, it's a mark of a believer. And this makes sense as I was reflecting on it. It seems pretty obvious, um, but I still felt very convicted by it because as I was thinking about this, the fruit of the Spirit really are all marks of believers. That's the way that Paul utilizes them in Galatians, as we've learned. There's the, the fruit of the flesh, and there's the fruit of the Spirit, and they're in opposition to one and another. And so the Christian, the person who's born again, will be continually marked by these fruits that the Spirit is bearing in their life. And so for the Christian... Joy is to be a mark of our life. It is to be something that sets us apart from the world. 
that we do not fall to circumstance and to what comes our way in life, but our joy is steadfast, that it endures. And the only way for that to happen is if our joy is found primarily in the Lord. Because the Lord is the only unchangeable one. He's the only perfectly faithful one. His promises are the only promises that are always kept and true. If we put our joy in anything else besides the Lord, our joy will falter and it will fail. But only in the Lord can we rejoice forever. So tied directly then to that is our joy in the blessings of the Lord. When I was growing up, I often heard this question in youth groups and other things. Um, and it's pretty common, I would say, in American evangelical culture to hear this kind of question. They would ask, would you want to go to heaven if God wasn't there? Would you want to go to heaven if God wasn't there? And again, I think this is a well-meaning question. Their desire is to emphasize, do you value what you get from God more than God himself? I think that's the effort. But I think the question actually is a bit misleading. Because again, it forces a dichotomy that the Bible doesn't recognize. They want to separate the blessings of the Lord and the work of the Lord from the Lord himself. But really, those are part and parcel of the same thing. The works of the Lord are God's manifestation of his character in the world, in history, and in time. And so to enjoy the blessings of the Lord, then, is to enjoy the Lord himself. So to show you guys this from the scriptures, would you mind turning to 1 Peter chapter 1? And we're going to be in verse 3 through 9. Somebody want to read that for us? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who is by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now... For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and f filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So here are two points are found in the same passage. In verse 6, you read, in this you rejoice. So if we look back at verse 5 to see what the in this refers to, it is, or sorry, verse 4 and 5, it is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, and a salvation through faith that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter calls them to and reminds them that this is their joy. Their joy is in the inheritance they have through Christ Jesus. And this inheritance for the believer is resurrection life. It is eternal life with God in perfect communion forever. It is the new heavens and the new earth. It is the removal of their sins and the imputed righteousness of Christ on their behalf so that they might live in union with Christ forever. That is their joy. It is the work of God. It is the work of God. Just like we studied last week, it is they're, they're rejoicing in the love of God which saves them from their sins through the blood of Christ shed on the cross and his resurrection. So they rejoice in their inheritance. And I think there's a, there's a major correlation here that you see in the New Testament, that the power to rejoice and the power of our hope for the believer that empowers us to live our lives with holiness and righteousness on earth is this inheritance that is to come. It is what we await as we live in the now and the not yet of the Christian life. But Peter goes on also and correlates their joy to God himself. He says, 
that now you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So their joy is both in their Savior and their God and in the inheritance that they have through the work of their God. And this is a pattern that we see throughout the Bible, really. If you look at the prophets, the prophets speak of the Israelites' return to Jerusalem after their exile, and it speaks of their rejoicing. They're rejoicing in God's salvation. They're rejoicing in returning to the lands of their God. Um, it's the same thing as we look to the return of Christ and the setting of all things right, that we rejoice in that hope, and we rejoice that Christ again will come. And so we should not separate the work of God and God himself, because they're part and parcel of the same thing. And in these timeless truths, do we, this is where we find our joy. We rejoice in the Lord, not in anything else in our lives, not in any other good thing, though we should be glad of the good gifts that God has given. Um, but primarily, we give thanks for those things and we enjoy the good gifts of God because we are joyful in the Lord himself. And so... One thing I really want to specifically talk about in mind of that is Christians' joy amid suffering. And I think this is, this is something the Bible talks a lot about. And it, goes, it ties very closely to what we're talking about. If Christians are to have joy in all circumstances, then that necessarily means suffering. And as we know, Christians are promised suffering. Um, Jesus tells us, that, tells us that himself, that we will endure suffering in this life. So, let me ask you guys, just to open up for discussion, how does a biblical view of joy, enjoying the Lord, joy in the Lord in the life of a believer, how does that inform the way we look at suffering and endure suffering? I'm thinking about Romans 5. It kind of has a similar point to you. It talks about rejoicing in hope and the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. And then later on it says, um, and more than that, we rejoice also in God himself. You know, it's kind of has this three-part joy of life. You know, we're rejoicing in the hope of God, you know, what he brings. We rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice so very similar. But it talks about how um, patience work, work of experience and experience hope. And hope make us not a shame because the love of God is poured abroad in our heart. Um, so kind of that sanctification, getting to experience the love of God more through our suffering is how we can you know, choose to have joy in a difficult situation. And, and that's in the passage you just, that was just read from 1 Peter too. 1 Peter also. Um, where he says, uh, he connects that to the test of genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Um, the test of genuineness coming through that suffering. But I think another reason, and it also comes up in 1 Peter, is um, he talks about suffering in 1 Peter 2, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Um, oh, I, yeah, I can start like that. But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so there's that sense where it's, we're following in the footsteps of Christ. We're united to Him. And as He suffered and was glorified, so we too will suffer and glorify it, be glorified with Him. Um, and also just the idea that too of being counted worthy to be suffered for the sake of Christ. Mm. Yeah, that makes me think of an Acts when John and Peter are preaching and they're taken before the religious leaders and they are uh, punished for preaching the gospel when they were told not to. Um, and that's what they do. They go away and they rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And so in suffering, we have there's this part of how we live in union with Christ. It's this great joy that we follow in his example. Um, and like Daniel said too, it is a way that we experience the love of God. Because God uses all of our suffering in this life to sanctify us and to conform us to his image. And also to bring himself glory. You have to think of uh, the, the lame man that the Pharisees asked Jesus, who sinned, his man or his parents, and Jesus' comment was, he's lame. 
to show God's glory so that he can heal him. And it's one of those, our suffering, but also being able to rejoice in him within our suffering brings him glory. Yeah. I think that's also, it's such a great, to your point, it's such a great witness to the world because it is so counter to everything the world tells you. And especially in American culture. Right? If you consider the American dream and the goal of American lives is... And it's this perfect life, is it not? The perfect life, the perfect house, the perfect car, that's the goal. And we're all just suffering until we make it there, and then we can be happy. But the Christian rejoices in all of their suffering because of their joy in the Lord. And they count it a joy to suffer with Christ. They consider it a joy because they will be sanctified. Um, and all of this rejoicing this brings glory to God. As it shows that he is, it shows the value of God, his immense worth and his beauty. And it proclaims the gospel because only through the truths of the gospel and its radical working in the lives of sinners could that ever be possible. Um, to that point, made me think of James 1, where James tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfast, steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So suffering then, for the Christian, if they look at the joy of the Lord and the biblical concept of joy, it empowers us to endure suffering with gladness. Um, And one thing I do want to say about that is I don't think this means that we can't feel suffering, that we can't feel sorrow and the hardships. it can be easy to try and pit those things against each other, like I said earlier. That like to be a truly rejoicing Christian means that when I'm in the midst of horrible suffering, that I'm laughing and giggling and having the time of my life. Um, I don't think that's the case. I don't think it means you know when loved ones die that you can't mourn them, that you can't feel that sorrow. And just like Christ was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He was a man who knew sorrow and he knew hardship. And yet the joy of the Lord, again, like we said earlier, is not just an emotion that comes or goes with our circumstances, but that it is something deeper. It is a contentment and a gladness in God that knows my greatest need has been met. Everything that I need is found in the Lord. And so whatever life throws my way, whatever comes across, I can be content in the Lord. Just a a, a verse that I feel like goes along with everything you're saying, too, Habakkuk. Three, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fails, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls. Yet, I rejoice in the Lord. I take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength, and he makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. I, was, I had that written down here because I think Habakkuk was thinking on the same lines. It's an amazing example of joy and suffering. Um, if you don't know the context of Habakkuk and those verses that Chase just read, Habakkuk cries out to the Lord in the beginning of the book about the violence and the sin and the iniquity of the Israelites that he sees around him. And he cries out to the Lord to act. And the Lord's answer, in short, is I'm going to bring an even more wicked nation the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they are going to lead the Israelites away in the exile. So Habakkuk cries out to the Lord about the wickedness of the people, and God's answer is, I'm going to bring even more wicked people to punish them. But then in chapter 2, he goes on to talk about how he will also punish the Babylonians and the wicked. And I was thinking about that this week, and that's not, if I was in Habakkuk's place, that's probably not the answer I would have been hoping for. Truthfully say, like if I was crying out to the Lord for the sins I see around me, and he tells me I'm going to take an even more wicked nation, and they're going to obliterate your city, and they're going to destroy the temple, and they're going to lead you all away to exile. That is probably not the message that immediately makes me think I'm going to rejoice and be glad in the Lord. That's exactly what Habakkuk does in this prayer that Chase just read. He says, even if the fig, there's no food, even if there's no flock, no herd, even if everything is stripped away, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Um, it's very reminiscent also of Job, right? Who rejoices in the Lord 
who giveth and taketh away, even as he endures hardship and suffering. And I would just say that that kind of joy is not found outside the gospel, is not found outside the heart that knows the Lord personally, that has been redeemed from sin and sees him as supremely worthy and valuable. I mean, we're all coming, we're on different paths of, of recognizing that more and more, but that's fundamentally the truth in every Christian life. And it's so important because for every Christian, there is difficulty. And we all undergo difficulty and suffering. And we don't always come to church on Sunday morning feeling joyful, feeling happy. But that's why our joy has to be rooted in something much deeper. And for the Christian, we can have joy because the strength of our joy is not in ourselves, but is in the God that we rejoice in. And this is what Nehemiah tells the people in Nehemiah 8. He tells them, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We can rejoice not because we have some power within ourselves to rejoice, even in the midst of hardships, but because the, the fountain of our joy is so unshakable, so beautiful, so steadfast, that it transcends any circumstances life could throw our way. Our hope of eternal life, our inheritance, is so sure and wonderful that there is no hardship or suffering that could ever taint that joy in the Christian life. So, with that being said, for the last few minutes, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about how do we cultivate joy in our lives. Because it's one thing to say we ought to rejoice and we can rejoice when suffering comes, and it's easy to say that when we're not suffering, but then when the suffering comes, it's a whole other thing to practically live that out. Um, and I, the joy in our lives in all circumstances has to be cultivated in the good times and the bad. Um, it's not something where if you want to have joy when the suffering comes, you, hop, you wait until that happens and then you just muscle through it. It's a, it's a characteristic, a fruit that comes as we abide in Christ day after day and he grows us in us. So I just want to spend a few minutes talking about four different ways that we cultivate joy. It's just four practical ways. So first is we cultivate joy by faith. We have faith in what we know. The battle for joy is found in the mind. Jonathan Cruz says that faith interprets life from the truths it believes. And this comes back to all the things we were saying earlier about how do we look at jo- how do we look at suffering and joy, how do those work together. All those answers are answers of faith and what God has said is true in his word. Every answer that you guys gave me is pointing to the scriptures and what we know is true from the scriptures. And so if we are to rejoice in suffering or we to rejoice in the good times, whatever circumstance we may be in, that starts with what we know and what is in our mind. We can't rely on what we feel in a given moment to give us joy. We have to rely on what we know. And I would just encourage you that in those moments where life is hard, what we have to do is preach to ourselves the truths of God's word. Remind us of God's goodness, of God's salvation, of the glory of God. Secondly, joy is cultivated in the greenhouse of prayer. And I really like that phrase that Jonathan Cruz uses, the greenhouse of prayer. He says, Joy grows in the greenhouse of prayer, and it will spread to overrun the heart and adorn the life. This all goes back to the meditating that we talked, to, that Reverend Rick talked about, the Word and prayer and communion with Christ. We read the Word, we fill our minds with the Word, we meditate on the Word, and we pray. We pray over the Word. We pray through the Word. Um, through prayer, we commune directly with God. We can bring our sorrows and our troubles to the Lord. And we can bring our joys and our thanksgivings to the Lord. And we glorify the Lord and praise Him in our prayers. And all of those things, as we do them, as you praise, as you offer your supplications, as you confess your struggles and your heartaches, what it helps to do is, in the act of doing that, you, are re- you reorient the way you think and the way you feel around the truth of God. In a practical way, you are giving those things to the Lord and coming back to the Lord and reminding yourself of all that you have in Him. I think prayer itself, by definition, is this act, is it not? Prayer is a dependence upon God. It is recognizing God's greatness, His sovereignty, His ability and goodness over ourselves. And so in prayer itself is the act of depending on God 
and seeking him. And so thirdly, to cultivate joy, we participate in the sacraments. This is something that I've come to understand and love and give thanks for more and more in my life, coming from a very evangelical background to Reformed Church and a Reformed understanding of the faith. Um, The sacraments are far more emphasized in Reformed theology than they tend to be in evangelical theology. And I think that's correct. Because one of God's great gifts to the church, one of his means of grace that we observe, is the sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. In baptism, when we witness baptism, we are reminded of the truths that baptism points to. We are reminded of God's washing of sinners, the washing of regeneration, the washing of the blood of Christ. We are reminded that we need him to do a great work in our lives and that we cannot do it ourselves. So whether we are witnessing someone's baptism or whether we are remembering our own Baptism is a practical way that reminds us of all that God has done and all of God's goodness and his character and what causes us to rejoice. And we can take great joy in the baptism that we've seen because we know what it signifies and the work of the Spirit behind it. And the same is true in the Lord's Supper. Um, The Lord's Supper is one of the most beautiful things in the Christian life to me personally. Um, One of the hard, hard things was waiting to take the Lord's Supper while we were going through the membership process because I felt so keenly how badly I wanted to partake with the body of Christ every week. Because in the Lord's Supper, we gather around the table of the Lord and we come by faith to participate. The Lord's Supper reminds us of God's goodness and of his salvation. It reminds us of Christ's body and blood that were given for us that we might be saved. And in the Lord's Supper, we spiritually uh, commune with Christ and we feast and our spirits are nourished, and our souls are fed. And this helps us to uh, rejoice and to have joy in the midst of life's sufferings. Um, No matter what may be going on in our lives, to be able to come to the Lord's table and partake with his people and be reminded of his gospel is a great gift and very important for the nourishing of joy in our lives. And then finally, it is the sharing of our joy that helps cultivate joy in our life. Um, I believe I read it first from John Piper, but he talked about that the consummation of joy or the enjoyment of something comes in sharing that with other people and the, the proclaiming and sharing of it with other people. So a practical example of that is I love Star Wars. I really enjoy Star Wars. Part of the enjoyment of Star Wars for me is enjoying it with other people. Um, I enjoy talking about it with my siblings or with Mark and <laughs> critiquing and commenting on the new shows and what we liked and what we didn't like. That's part of how I enjoy Star Wars is this consummation of enjoyment is found in the sharing of it with other people. And far more than Star Wars, this is true in the Christian life, that the consummation of our joy in the Lord comes when we proclaim the joy of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord, our rejoicing in the gospel with those around us, both believers and unbelievers. Um, We cultivate joy when we come and we proclaim the joy of the Lord together on Sunday mornings. And we cultivate joy when we proclaim the joy of the Lord to those who do not know the joy of the Lord in their own lives. Um, It's one of the ways, one of the things I love about teaching too, is I've found that the truths of God's word cultivate so much joy and rejoicing in my life because I meditate on them and I think on them. And then I get to talk about them with people. And it makes it all the sweeter because at the very end, I get to try and share these beautiful things that I've seen in God's word. And it is in itself a very important part of how we rejoice in the Lord. So there's four ways for you, practical ways, that you can cultivate joy. Um, Reminding ourselves of what God has done and grounding our joy in the Lord and not in our circumstances. Um, So before we pray and wrap up, does anybody have any comments or thoughts that they would want to share? Questions? I think as we think about cultivating joy in each other's lives, uh, the one thing we need to remember that you mentioned earlier is we need to give people, allow for them to grieve in the midst of their trials and their difficulties. You know, we need to be careful not to quote Romans 8.28 and, you know, because we feel uncomfortable with their, their suffering, you know, we just want them to get it out of our lives, you know, so we just sort of say, hey, it's all going to be okay, just don't worry about it, suck it up, you know, we need to, we need to grieve with them. You know, I think is one thing. The other thing, too, is um, oftentimes we want to fix people. We want to fix their problems. And based on what, you know, we were saying today, it's not the circumstances. 
it's it's we need to direct our focus to Christ. So what we ought to do is be leading people to Christ and you know thinking and meditating and dwelling upon Him in an encouraging way, not in a mm-hmm. I'm going to fix you way, but you know just reminding them things of who Christ is and what He's doing. But yeah. with that, I, when you were talking about this, I was reminded of Jesus with the death of Lazarus. Um, both Mary and Martha come and basically say the same statement to him. Uh, if you were not, if you were had been here, our brother would not have died. But he responds differently to them, depending on what he knows about them and the personality of the person he's talking to. With Martha, he does remind her to a certain extent of the resurrection, but also to the fact that he's going to resurrect her brother in just a couple of minutes. With Mary, he, he just cries, um, and and I, I it does take a lot of wisdom to know. Mm-hmm. What to do in each situation, and uh, hopefully a strong relationship to work off of that. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I was going to put in the plug for a book, um, "Rejoice and Tremble" by Michael Reeves. He's talking about the surprising good news of the fear of the Lord and connecting the fear of the Lord to joy. Very mm-hmm. good book. Yeah, that's all good. So I agree wholeheartedly. Rejoicing, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep, and they don't have to be. Again, they're not a dichotomy. To suffer does not mean that you have to pretend you're not suffering. And we ought not to pretend that people shouldn't suffer or feel the hardship. Uh, but we point them back to some what is outside their circumstance, which is the Lord, and gently remind them uh, that they it's okay to weep and it's okay to mourn, uh, but just to remember that God is good and he is eternal and he has saved them and that he is gracious to them. And just point them back to the Father who loves them and cares for them and who will take care of them. Um, So let's go ahead and pray and wrap up. Father God, thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the truth of the gospel that we have been saved from our sins, redeemed, and brought into communion with you forever. Um, That we enjoy communion with you now and we will enjoy it in the heavens and the earth with you for all eternity. that one day our sins will be um, gone forever, that we will know you uh, without sin tainting our view or understanding. Uh, Lord, we long for that day, and we rejoice in your grace, we rejoice in your mercy shown to us. And as we worship together this morning, I pray that you would cultivate joy in our hearts, that your spirit would produce rejoicing as we sing and as we hear the word preached. Um, as we pray together, Lord, would you make us a joyful people? And would that joy carry out um, this week into our lives? Would we spread that joy and share that joy with those around us? In Christ's name, amen.